how short a notice I actually got, right? So, you know, no worries, no worries. Pastor Rob is in the throes of wedding planning, so if you can't give him grace on that, you should just leave, right? So he's busy doing that. He, uh, his, one of his daughters was at my work today. I work for a shoe company, so they were coming in and just tearing apart the warehouse and kicking over boxes and stuff. So um, I definitely sympathize with that. It wasn't too long ago. Um, so um, I'm, I'm always honored to fill in for Pastor Rob. Again, my job is not to fill his shoes. It's just not to dirty him while I'm here. So I'm going to try to keep him clean so you guys will come back on Sunday um, for Pastor Rob. So if you'll open with me, you need your Bibles. If you don't have one, John will get you one. And you're going to want one in your hand. I don't teach from the Bible. I teach the Bible. There's a difference. We're going to be opening up to the book of Hosea. Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, just crack the New Testament. Go 12 small books to the left. I believe in the church Bible, it's page 511. It's at the beginning. But we're going to be in chapter 11. So... Chapter 11. Hosea, we're going to take a look at three big, big concepts tonight, but these should be everyday concepts, every hour concepts, every minute concepts in the Christian walk. These should be concepts that we never stop studying. These are concepts that we never stop praying about, we never stop listening about or just meditating on day in and day in, because this is our connection here with a loving God. So we're in chapter 11, and let me set up the book of Hosea. If you were here a couple weeks back, I taught on Hosea 2 through 3, and I kind of gave the same spiel, sorry if it's redundant, but it's good, repetition creates a wrinkle in the brain, so uh, creates a little memory. So Hosea is a book where God kicks off the whole thing by showing up and telling a prophet to marry a prostitute. Okay, so, but what is a prophet? What is prophecy? Okay, I'll give you a fourth concept real quick. I love definitions. You guys are going to get that about me. I love just, I'm a dork about constructing nice, concise definitions because it helps me. I actually learned that in the Marine Corps because, I don't know if you know this, Marine Corps are not known for being very bright. Okay, so, they just break it down to nice little compact definitions. And you're like, oh, that's mean. I was one. It's okay. I can make fun of others. So, Okay, and and what is prophecy? So God shows up and he's talking to a prophet. And what is prophecy? If you don't understand that, then it's really tough to read a prophetic book, right? So I would define prophecy as God's word through flesh pointing to God's word as flesh. See that? Prophecy is God's word through flesh. It comes through man, but. It is always pointing to God's word come as flesh, and that's Christ. So right off the bat, if prophetic voices aren't pointing you to Jesus, they're not prophetic. They're not. It's not of God. I received a word from God. How do we parse that out? How do we figure it out? There's lots of different ways. There's biblical prescriptions for how to test spirits and how to test that sort of thing. That's why we have the Bible That's why we can always test it against the Bible. But right off the bat, if it doesn't point you to Jesus, it's not prophetic. If you're reading a book, I got a great Christian author, and I love this sort of thing, and he's not pointing you to Jesus, just burn it. Just be done with it. Don't even give it away. Right? God's word through flesh pointing to God's word as flesh. So God shows up, sends prophetic message through Hosea, this religious leader in Israel, and says, go marry a prostitute. He knows ahead of time she's a prostitute. It's not like a cruel trick. Like, go marry her, and then, oh, by the way, she's a prostitute. Good luck, write a book about it. Right? So God says, go marry the prostitute. And in the first three chapters, he sets up this marriage between a prophet and a prostitute. And and Hosea grips with this idea that he has to pursue his wife to no end. She's unfaithful. It's just flat fun for her to run from her husband. And so God sets up, by his ordaining, he sets up this marriage to teach Hosea this critical lesson. They've got children, one that we're sure is Hosea's, the other two may not have been. 
and they're all named accordingly to show these big concepts of God. And so in the first three chapters, very concise, I encourage you to go home, read them tonight. It sets up this familiar understanding, this, this family that is going to then set the stage for Hosea preaching the same message of a God that pursues to the nation of Israel. And then chapters 4 all the way to the end are Hosea proclaiming to Israel all that he learned in the first three chapters alone about pursuing an unfaithful bride. That's the church. That's us. That's why I say it's a great book to teach college students. I get to show up every week and call them prostitutes. Hey, prostitutes, how are you guys doing today? Myself included, okay? Because we're spiritual sluts. We are. We whore ourselves out to the world left and right. And contrary to the popular belief that religion is about man finding his way back to God, it's about repenting and by the grace of God realizing that he's already there because he's been pursuing you the whole time. And he's on your heels. And so a lot of times we think religion, God up here, man deviates in sin and religion is to relink to God and get back to him. It's not the case. We deviate and then God pursues us. And he follows us. It doesn't mean we don't have any say in the matter. He's calling us to repentance at all times. And in repentance, when we turn, we realize he's right there. Religion teaches that man must get to God. The gospel is that God has come to man. And so we open up chapter 11. And so we set that up that the marriage is the first three. And then the the rest of the book, 4 through 14, is Hosea preaching prophesying to the nation of Israel, this is what you're doing. And he gets it better than anyone now, right? There's no better understanding of a God that pursues than Hosea, who was declared by God, told by God to marry this prostitute, and then he pursued her. And he knows deep and well what it feels like to have adultery committed against him. And God more so than Hosea, knows what that feels like. See, we, 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 subs- we, we, we don't ascribe emotion to God. We figure he's just God. He can handle everything, right? How often do you think of God mourning and God weeping and God being broken, right? We're, it, it seems like easier for us to just assume that he's wrathful, right? Well, that's a God that would strike down. But God mourns because he's a good husband. Jesus was a good husband to an unfaithful bride, myself included. And he's also a good father. And so as we crack this, we need to know that we're we're in this portion that Hosea is now declaring to Israel this massive understanding of a God that pursues. And and this was a, a great chapter because up until now, it's been a lot of just beating over the head with the same recurring themes in Hosea. Over and over and over, you're unfaithful, you have idols, you have a divided heart, you're in sin, you're in captivity. I pursue you and you fake repent. You won't turn around, you continue, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going. And finally we get to chapter 11. Just over and over and over. Virtually like all my sermons in Hosea sounded the same. Until chapter 11. And so we've dealt with this fact that we're, we're, we're spiritually depraved, we're sinful, We're prostitutes. We whore ourselves out. We're idols. We have this divided heart. That was just, I believe, two chapters ago. This this divided heart between idols and this, we've got a public profession of faith, but we actually, we we hold dear so many idols. And, And for the college ministry, I said, write down a list of the things this week. This week, just seven things. This is the easiest way for me to expose an idol. Seven things that you are going to get more excited about this week than what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That's pretty easy, right? Like, it took me all of like 14 seconds to come up with seven, right? Work, working out, family, friends. Notice these aren't even bad things. These are just good things that I made God things. And I get super excited. But on a day-to-day basis, I don't have the same sort of excitement for the fact that I'm not going to hell, that I'm not going to weep and gnash my teeth for the rest of eternity, That God doesn't see me for who I am. He sees me despite who I am through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so the easiest way to expose idols is just simply say, what do I get all excited about during the week? And keep in mind, they may not be bad things. A lot of times, most often, idols are good things that we've made God things. But then we come to chapter 11. And I love this chapter because this is about God's love for his people. It's been a lot of beating over the head. The college students know more than anyone, right? They are so tired. They drag themselves in. Oh my gosh. 
I'm a sinner, I need to repent, I'm a whore, right? And we finally get to this. And it's still a tough chapter, but I want to talk through three big concepts. I love threes, right? Because it's this whole idea, if you've got the NKJV like me, the, the, the title on top says God's continuing love for Israel. That's the point. That's the point, is that he continues despite you. A lot of you have been made to believe that God loves you for who you are. Through outside sources, probably YouTube, okay? You're told that God loves you for who you are. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Oh, what do you mean? God loves you despite who you are. God doesn't love you for who you are. You're a sinner. God loves you despite who you are. Hosea loved Gomer despite who she was. And he pursued her. That's the gospel. Chapter 11 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to Baals and burned incense to carved images. This is God hearkening back some 500 years before Hosea's day. Some 500 years, he reaches back. Parents, you know you do this. I'm a parent. Got two little ones. I'm already doing it. I'm like, oh, Ethan, you're three. But when you were one, right? Parents, you've done that. Kids, you've heard your parents do that. Oh, when you were a baby. Oh, when you were just a little toddler, right? Because what are parents doing? They're going back to when you were just entirely dependent on them. You just needed them for everything. And God's a good father and he hearkens back and says, look, when you were a spiritual baby, I called you out of Egypt. He was protecting them. He had provision for them. When you were a baby, if you're sitting here today, I know you can hearken back to when your faith was an infant. Maybe some of you are struggling with faith right now. And that moment's right now that you're an infant. And God hearkens back because he knows it's this precious time that when he pulls out this, this nurturing time that, that it can just be so impactful in, in the life of Israel because they've come so far. And so he hearkens back like any good father does. And again, this is 500 years before Hosea's day. He says, I taught Ephraim to walk. I used to call it Ephraim until one of my college students taught and he was up there going, Ephraim, and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, well, I can't have him pronounce it right. And me, sound like an idiot. I'm like, Ephraim, that's how you say it in America. And then he's like, no, it's Ephraim. Okay, so I'm struggle, still struggling with that. It's an ego thing, right? So I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. See, so he's reaching back and saying, look, I used to have to help you walk. Right, parents? Right? Kids just want to run. Right? I want to drive. I want to go on road trips. I want to go across state lines. I want to And you're just like, Oh, I remember when you just needed me to help you walk, right? You see how God is just this, he's just like us a lot of times. He's instilled emotions into you so that you will know more about how he feels about you. They're not foreign. He's not like, oh, you guys just deal with these weird emotions. You're like, harken back to when your kids were babies because they were dependent on you. I don't get that. I like you now better. He says, no, I loved when you were just so dependent on me, you couldn't even walk. I loved that part. He says, think back to those days. Think back to the fact that you were depraved and had a divided heart. And then I pursued you and I helped you walk and we began walking. And so he hearkens back. But of course, we do what we do best. We try to make the gospel about us, right? I say this all the time to college students. They're, they more than anyone know that the Bible is not about them because I tell them every week, read the whole thing, none of you made it, right? Myself included. I got a name from it, but they weren't talking about me. Bible's not about you. Bible is for you. The Bible is about God with implications for you. So don't crack the Bible and say, what can I learn about myself? No, you're going to learn about God and what that means for you. And so he says, they did not know that I healed them. Israel wanted to make it about them. They wanted to make it about their wealth. They wanted to make it about their job, their career, their profession, their family, their friends, their status in life, their location, their vacation days, their retirement. All good things that Israel at this point in their life was making God things. And it says, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. 
And so God draws his people, but it's never with harsh manipulation. It's not. God draws his people, he pursues his people, but it's not harsh manipulation. It's not. It's with tender love. And it says this in Romans 2, 4. It says, Or do you desire the riches of his goodness, that's Jesus, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, a lot of times we look for some fire-breathing sermon to just knock us into place. Tell me about my sin. Just, just yell at me. I need that. God says, that's not how I operate. And, and I do this with my child. It's, I do this with Ethan. I've just begun to because he's finally at that stage where he can comprehend the questions. And it's, it's just a picture of God to me because it's very relational the way I want to deal with him. Don't get me wrong. I, I still spank him when he needs it, right? I think that's still legal in California. I'm not sure, right? And it's on video now, so I might have to move to Texas or something. So that was a joke if you were here Sunday, right? Pastor Rob joked. Okay. Anyways, so... <laughs> Keep it quiet, Jeff. All right. So <laughs> no, so, so it's very relational the way I want to deal with my son. I want him to understand this relationship that we have. I don't want it to be about, about a spanking, about hard reprimand. Ethan just rebels for me. They're, re- they're rebellious from day one. Parents know that. Kids are the only ones that don't understand it, right? They're rebellious from day one. Oh, it's only young people that are like, we're born good. Parents are like, you were not awake for that whole part, Right? You were a rebel from day one. And Ethan does something. I say, Ethan, for example, no jumping on the bed. My wife's very sick right now with our third child. Any move of the bed, it's like a whole boat tips. And she's like, oh, you know, says, Ethan, don't. And he does it and he hits the bed. And I come and say, come here. And I get down real close and say, Ethan, who am I? So you're like, are you going to quiz the poor kid, right? Say, Ethan, who am I? Your daddy. Ethan, who are you? I'm Ethan. How does daddy feel about you? Ethan, how does daddy feel about you? Daddy loves Ethan. What are you going to do? Ethan, what are you going to do? Daddy loves you. What are you going to do? I'm going to listen to you because daddy loves you and because what I'm doing and what I'm telling you and how I'm correcting you is part of how I love you. So I'm daddy, you're Ethan, and I love you. I need you to listen to me. And that's how God shows up. A lot of times we almost want it to be more drastic, right? We just want him to like throw us around sometimes. He shows up, he says, look, it's with gentle cords. It's God's Kindness that leads us to repentance. That's a very different God from all the gods of the fake world religions. That's very different. That sit up on their throne and laugh at us as we just try to figure it out. And so he says with gentleness. He says with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. See, a, a yoke is simply this plowing collar. A lot of times we don't know that. We're in California, right? I'm from Minnesota. I used to go work on the farm every once in a while. Not a ton, so still a city boy, right? But you put this yoke collar on an animal that plows for you. And it just steered, and it was heavy, and it was massive, just like this big clamp. God just says, I'm going to loosen that. And Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. God says part of the way that he loves you is he just releases it. And and for the animal, that was just a, a time to breathe and a time to rest. And Jesus says, you're no longer bound by that yoke. See, all this is foreshadowing Jesus. And it's just God giving him his picture. says, look, you think it's coincidence that Jesus used the same language, right? He says, look, I'm just going to loosen that yoke. I want, you to see what I f- I want you to see what life in me feels like apart from the law. Because it's just this heavy, heavy, heavy burden. 
God says, I love you so much. I just want to loosen. I just want you to feel rest in me. And we love that, right? Parents, we love just loosening those burdens from our kids and just seeing them just be like, ah, it's so much better here. A lot of times they don't get it still. Still don't get it, but you see that ease and that rest and it comforts you as a parent. You love that, right? So God says, look, that's the way I operate as well. He says, and it was I that who took the yoke from their neck, I stooped and fed them. Again, this is the God that pursues his people. He continues to stoop. He would say, I don't stoop to your level. God stooped to yours. He stooped to yours, was a servant of all. Don't act like you can't, quote, stoop to other people's level, because that assumes what? You're on a higher level. That's what the Pharisees thought. It's not what Christians think. It says, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they, this is our first big concept, first big Christian concept that you need to understand with, you need to grow up, just grapple with every day. But the Assyrian shall be his king, speaking of Israel, because they refused to repent. Some of you think God's surprised that you sin. Like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. I didn't realize that 100% of men are at some point going to struggle with pornography in their life or at least view it or see it. They just tried to do a study in the UK. Juxtaposed men development issues between men who had viewed porn, men who had not. Couldn't find anyone that had not. Had to scrap all the grant money and everything. America looks, oh, it's over the pond. I've seen the stats, gentlemen. And women, it's rising for you too. You think he didn't know that America was going to be gripped with pornography right now? Men in the church, myself included, 17 years I was addicted to pornography. By the grace of God, I was released of that only about two and a half years ago. When I actually learned what repentance meant. And so this big idea of repentance, some of you have heard this before, I'm going to preach it till the day I die. I just want you to know that. Every time we come across the word repentance, repent, I'm going to preach this little bit. Okay? If you keep coming to this church, get used to it. Repentance is not overcoming your sin. Repentance is not overcoming your sin. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that you overcome your sin. The gospel is that Jesus already has. You need to know that difference. So how do we repent? Do we feel bad? Do we say I'm sorry? Do we, no. Do we, do we weep the er- earthly repercussions? No. Repentance is, this is the first big concept, and all three of them are about Jesus. No surprise. God's word through flesh, pointing to God's word as flesh. Israel refused to repent. They came back to God just as Gomer came back to Hosea said, you know what? It was kind of tough out there on the streets being a prostitute and all. So I figure I'll go back to my husband. Not true repentance. She would go right back out and do it again. And so you continue to hear about repentance. You're like, this guy's starting to get redundant. Every time I show up, he's preaching pretty much the same sermon. This is an every minute concept in the Christian walk. Every minute repentance. So what is it? It's the cross. No, that's where a guy who was sinless went and died. Yes, but in that, God is always continually, perfectly modeling for us concepts of him. And on the cross, God modeled repentance. How? Because on the cross, God dealt with sin. God says, take a look at how I deal with sin before you begin to think you can deal with yours. And so repentance is simply perfected on the cross when Jesus became everything you've ever done in your life. Everything bad, every bad thought, every pornography viewed, every curse word, every time you dishonored your parents, lied, cheated, stealed, gossiped, every single thing of every single person for all of human history, Jesus actually became it. And he hung on the cross and he said what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had turned away from Jesus. As sin, God says, he became sin 
And in the presence of sin, you have a twofold response. God says, I turn from sin, and then God put Jesus to death. And he perfected repentance. I turn from and put to death sin. God deals with it. And if that's how he deals with sin, that's how we should deal with sin. We turn from and put to death our sin. That has to be a daily. You're not going to get over your sin. Again, remember, the gospel is not that you can overcome your sin. By the grace of God, you're in a process of sanctification. But don't assume you're going to get to a point where you don't deal with sin. Even sin that you've repented of, it's going to come back. But it's a daily turning from and putting to death. Why? Not about you again. Some of you thought that. It's not. Again, read the Bible, not in it. It's not. It's reflecting to a world as image bearers of God what Jesus did for you on the cross. So it's not about, hey, I can deal with my sin. It's pretty great. It says, no, I'm showing you what God did with sin and that's something that you can share in with me. And so it's a reflection of Jesus to a broken and fractured world when we turn from and put to death our sin. And Israel was not willing to do that. They had amassed wealth. God had blessed them. God saw fit to use them to proclaim his nature, his order, his law to the land, right? And he's doing the same thing today. And the way by which we repent is every bit about Jesus. Every bit. So Israel was not willing to do this. At the time, Gomer was not willing to do this. God says, turn from your sin and put it to death. Some of you need to hear that, myself included. You need to turn from and put to death sin in your life. Not because it's about you, but because that reflects Jesus he says, he that being Israel shall not return to the land of Egypt. This is verse five. But the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to repent. God knew you were gonna sin. What he gets frustrated with is your lack of repentance. You think he's concerned with your sin like he didn't know it was gonna happen. He is concerned with your sin because he's seen the other side. He knows it equates to death. But then he offers repentance. Jesus shows up in Matthew, Right? First word out of his mouth when he kicks off his preaching ministry, what? Repent. And I imagine he smiled because it was an offering. It's not the law anymore. You get to repent. A lot of times it's like, repent. Right? And it's for the, the, the freaks down that, that, that protest all the funerals and stuff like that. And repent, God hates fags and all that nonsense. And that's what the world thinks of repent. It's not. Jesus shows up, he's like, everyone, you get to repent. Jew, Gentile, you get to repent. Turn from and put to death your sin. Be reconciled to me. It's a gift. It's an offering. We just see it as like a burden. It's not. He says, And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsel. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Some of you think that's just like Christianese term, right? It's in the Bible, backsliding. It just simply means you're beginning to do what? Deviate. You're just beginning to backslide. You're just getting pulled, as it said in two chapters earlier, it just talks about this divided heart and it's starting to grip you again. Your idols are starting to pull you again. They're starting to steer you out of this process of sanctification. You're not repenting, you're submitting. Sin as a Christian, the Bible says, does not have dominion in your life. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with it. It means it doesn't have dominion over your life. And that involves taking your idols and replacing them with Jesus and saying he is the reason. God doesn't love me for who I am. God loves me despite who I am. This is part of God's reoccurring love that he's showing Israel at this time that Hosea had continued to show Gomer at this time that we experience as God continues to pursue us today. It says they're bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. I'll just simply refer you to Mark 7, verse 21, when Jesus says what? Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You think simply stating your title Christian, which is used twice in the New Testament, as opposed to the hundreds of times you are described as being in Christ. This is not a title you throw around. It is a lifestyle in which you are in. It is a process of sanctification which you are in. I think the Bible properly weights that. It says, look, I'm going to tell you what to call each other so you'll know each other. Christian, Christian, terrific. Now let's get to being in Christ. And so 
They call to the Most High and none at all exalt him. They've got a public profession of faith. They have a divided heart. They are not seeking Jesus. They are not seeking the coming Messiah. We are not seeking Jesus. We're simply showing up to church on a Wednesday night because we thought we had a bad week. And they're faking repentance. Fine, Jesus, it's all about you. Heard a pretty good sermon on Sunday. Not tonight, right? I heard a pretty good one on Sunday. And you say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never even knew you. Did he lose his salvation? Nope, didn't even have it. Because he didn't repent. He didn't submit to Jesus. He was submitted to sin. He being Israel, they being us. Verse 8 says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Again, do you think of God as a God of sympathy? Or just a God of rules? This isn't a book of rules. This is a book of revelation. Big, big, big difference. God reveals himself, his order, his nature, his desire. A lot of times we don't have it, so like, I'm not going to follow the rules. It's not rules. You saw it wrong. You saw it as rules. How many of us should look at the Old Testament like just one massive list of rules, right? Instead of revelation where he says, I'm going to use people to show other people me. But then he says this, he says, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. Again, a lot of you are like, well, this is the Old Testament, Okay? We've read some of the Old Testament. God was mad, had anger issues in the Old Testament. Okay, 400 years of silence, went to therapy, sent Jesus to apologize. Right? Like Jesus is the apology for the mad God of the Old Testament. And he's kumbaya and he loves everyone. So it's pretty much relegated. The only thing we read as Christians is the New Testament. That's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is about rules and anger and the poor guy that just wanted to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling gets murdered by God. I don't like the Old Testament. It's God that's anger. God does have anger. As a father, as a parent, you should have righteous anger at things that want to destroy your bride, at things that want to destroy your children. Call me crazy. Call me a former Marine. One of my favorite scenes in the Bible is Jesus in the temple, right? Kumbaya Jesus, right, goes right out the window when he's in the corner making a whip, right? I imagine he's just quoting the Bible himself. He's like, you know what? Be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. And he's he's binding it, and what does he do? He goes ballistic. Ballistic. So I'm like, well, he wasn't violent. The Bible saw fit to tell us that he made a whip. What, so he could walk around and say, don't make me use this. (laughs) Jesus, you're supposed to apologize for the mean old God of the Old Testament. Jesus is running around driving people from his home. Someone comes into your house and is harming your family. Gentlemen, you better act like Jesus and get righteously angry real quick. Righteous anger. God has righteous anger. Hosea at times, no doubt, was angry with Gomer. But he knew in the end it would be his kindness that led her to repentance, not his anger. And so God here shows us, he says, look, I'm gonna set this aside. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger, though we deserve it, yes? All in agreement, ah, praise God, we suck, right? And it says, for I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not man. God shows up, he says, Christian, who am I? Right? Do we, how about starting our prayer with that? Just the response, you're God. You're God. I'm creation. You love me. And I want to listen to you. I want to learn from you. I want to be in you. Because in me, in my flesh dwells no good thing. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to submit. Because he shows up. He says, I'm God. You're a man and I love you love you so much that I revealed myself to you. I just don't want you running around earth with your like chicken with your head cut off trying to figure it out. Hope we get there. All other faiths, right? Some would say they got better faith than us. They're just hoping. How's that whole keeping the law thing working out? Ah, I hope it works out in the end. No assurance. No assurance. 
teaching through 1 John and Sundays. Just a book replete with insurance. This is how you'll know you're in Christ. Truth, love, righteousness. You can actually know you're in Christ. No other faith offers that. All religions are the same. Jesus is different. So he says, I'm going to set that aside. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. God forgives. And again, this is a concept that for most of my life I got wrong. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to talk about forgiveness. Repentance is what? First stage, what? Turning from. Second stage is what? Putting to death. Killing, I'm down with that. Turning from, putting to death your sin. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Again, I, I like to strip things down. I like to strip down preconceived notions before I replace them with good ones. Right? Because a lot of times we come to the table with a lot of wrong ideas about biblical concepts. Just, you don't have to write this down. I don't have a slide, though I'm a slide freak. Okay? Not enough time. Okay. Forgiveness is not approving or reducing the gravity of sin. Well, I forgive you, so I guess it wasn't that bad. I guess it's okay. Nope, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not enabling sin to continue. I forgive you. Therefore, I'm not going to do anything to protect myself against it happening again. It's not approving or reducing sin. It's not enabling sin to continue. It's not denying that sin occurred. I forgive you, so it's just... God, God casts sin as far as the east is from the west, so clearly God forgets sin. God doesn't forget sin. It doesn't mean you have to forgive, you have to forget sin. You don't. It'd be prudent not to at times. But we're going somewhere. It's not denying sin occurs, it's not waiting for a confession. I'll forgive you as soon as you come over here and talk to me about it. Right? Parents, you know that. You've forgiven them before the kid even like, gets back from throwing rocks at cars or anything like that. Come here! I'm like, forgive that little grubber. Right? And it's like an ankle biter runs up to you, you know? You've already forgiven them. You just need them to see the process. It's not waiting for confession and repentance. It's not having to forget. Again, it's not having to forget sin. It's not, it doesn't mean no longer feeling pain. It may still hurt. You're like, well, I, I still feel pain, so I guess I just haven't forgiven them. You can forgive, but don't assume that you're going to stop feeling pain. It's a broken world out there. It's a broken world in here. Have you looked around? Right? It's not a one-time event. It happens over and over. Sometimes for the same sin, with the same person. Maybe it's just one instance that you have to continue to forgive over and over because your heart gets puffed up again. It's not negating justice. Another way of saying that is, yes, yeah, sometimes you've got to call the cops. Right? Well, he hit me, but I forgave him. Call the freaking cops. Okay? Call church leadership. Probably in that order in that case, right? Get out. It doesn't mean you negate justice. There are still earthly ramifications. The Bible says your sin will find you out. God instituted law. He instituted justice for a reason. So it's not negating justice. It's not blind trust. I struggle with forgiveness most of my life because... It was, I don't know, a year or two after my grandpa died, my parents decided to tell me that my grandpa had molested my mom as a child. And they rightly understood that at that stage of my life, I would have waited, I would have calculated, I would have been very diligent. I wouldn't have murdered him, but I would have bludgeoned the living daylights out of him the next time we saw him. I would have waited, I would have gone, I would have sat, watched a movie, waited till everyone was calm. I, pictured, I could have pictured the whole thing. That used to be my heart. And I would have jumped on it. My grandma would have run out and I said, this was under your roof too. I wouldn't have hit her. Man, I, had, I would have just salivated over the opportunity because I had no understanding of forgiveness. If it hurt, it required response and from me. And it doesn't mean the full restoration of the relationship. So it's not blind trust, like I said, number nine. It's not full restoration. I talked to my mom the first time I taught on forgiveness. I asked her about that whole thing. How did you deal with that? How did you forgive? And we talked through some of these things. And she said, of course I forgave him. But don't think for a second he was ever alone with your sisters. Doesn't mean she goes back to blind trust. You kidding me? Crazy. Bad parenting, right? That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is canceling a debt owed to you. 
It is removing the control of the offender. It is giving a gift to yourself and to your offender. It is forsaking revenge. It is leaving ultimate justice. This is what I did not get, among other things. It's not, or it is leaving ultimate justice in God's hand. You think anything you can do on this earth is going to have any sort of bearing on what judgment's going to feel like for all of us. For all of us. Forgiveness is an ongoing process and it is wanting good for your offender. I would submit to you that a biblical definition of forgiveness is no longer seeing someone through the lens of their sin. We are sinners. Do you know what the Bible talks about God hating sinners? Do you know that? Well, well, no, see, I saw a bumper sticker one time. It said, uh, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. Cool. Who said that? Gandhi, not Jesus. I don't study Gandhi. Couldn't really care much for him. Hope he's in heaven someday, but... That's not biblical theology. Theology, which is just stating the truth about God, is that God hates sinners. You want the references? I got them. Last time I said this, a bunch of people text me. Hold on, I need references. That's tough to deal with. It's tough to deal with. We're forgiven, right? Yeah. Are you a sinner? Yeah. So God hates sinners? Yeah. There's got to be a catch. This is not the gospel I signed up for. Again, you're trying to make it about you. You think you're going to step into eternity and God's going to judge you. That's not what happens. God loves you despite who you are. He no longer sees you through the lens of your sin. When you step into eternity, you will not be judged on your character, your morals, your track record, your church attendance. You will be judged on Christ's righteousness. So here, we're sinners. True. True statement. Those that are in Christ, God from heaven sees you not as sinners. You see that? But as soon as you start to make it about you, as soon as you say, okay, tell you what, Jesus, I, I've done pretty good. I want to kind of step out to the side, maybe to the front of you. And God says, oh, there you are. Oh, yeah, you're terrible. And so in forgiveness, God doesn't judge you based on your sin. He judges you based on Christ's righteousness. You have to invert that thinking. God no longer sees you through the lens of your sin. He sees you through the lens of the cross. And in that, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Jesus says, you know what? I'm the advocate, propitiation. I take the whole thing and I put it on my shoulders. God, you judge me, not them, because they're terrible. Look at them. They're terrible back there. Look at them. They're terrible. Praise God when you step into eternity under the umbrella of God, under the umbrella of Christ, when God's wrath is poured out. You know he's coming back, right? When his wrath is poured out, you will not be judged on you. You will be judged on Christ. That's ultimate forgiveness. And he says this. So he says, I will not come in terror. Again, you've been forgiven in Christ. You are not being judged for you. You are being judged by a holy God through the lens of Jesus. He says, they shall walk after the Lord. This is the whole point. This is the, the, the restoration component. The restoration component. The five chapters of God's story. Creation. Fall. Redemption on the cross, restoration, and consummation. That's Revelation. See, we forget that we're in the fourth chapter of God's story. We look at the cross, we look at Revelation, we're like, so that already happened and that has yet to, so what do we do? Restoration. It's about us being active agents in God's restorative work on the earth. Paul said that Christ's blood began a restorative work. God is right now, currently, and in much of the Bible, he's pointing to the restorative framework of his gospel. The cross happened, but the world didn't end. He has time for us. He's given us time to take part in being restorative agents. And so he says, they shall walk after the Lord. This is this whole restoration. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. 
Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Judy, or the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. God loves us. God pursues us. He sends prophets in the Old Testament. He sends pastors and friends and family now to declare his word so that people will repent, so that people will turn from, put to death their sin. It's not that they're trying to get their way back up to God. It's that they're simply turning from, putting to death, and realizing that God has pursued them and he meets them right where they are. God meets you tonight on any host of sins that you can come up with. He pursues you tonight. By the grace of God, he shows up and he says, I'm already here. Repent. In repentance, when we turn from sin, we turn from death. God says, I forgive you. I no longer see you for who you are because I don't love you for who you are. I love you despite who you are and I see you through the cross of Christ because I love you. The Bible says that God wishes that none would perish. None. We have other plans. God says, I wish that none perish because he loves us. But the world does not understand love. Christians, by and large, myself included, do not understand love. We've got a little better, we, we have a, an amazing sermon in Sunday. Who was here Sunday? Pastor Rob's sermon on love. The breadth and the depth and the language and the parsing out and all that sort of stuff. I'm more simple-minded. He's much smarter. I got like a one-sentence thing, right? So you guys are like, I see a theme here. This is all I can put together, okay? What is Love. I was driving up to Tahoe to go do the Tough Mudder with some friends. We were talking about a host of different issues. Divorce and porn and homosexuality and gossip and all sorts of stuff. And it came out that they will know us by our love. God is love. Love is not God, but God is love. And if God is love, we're to emulate love. What is love? We understand repentance a little better. We understand forgiveness a little better. But they keep beating me over the head with love. And how do I juxtapose that with God and his order and his wrath and his anger and all this sort of stuff? How do I juxtapose that? How do I reconcile that with a God that is love? What's your definition of love? Think right now. Like if someone just said an answer on a test, just a long blank line, love is All good things. Here's what I'll say love is. Love is wanting for others what God wants for them. Love is wanting for others, interpersonally, wanting for others what God wants for them. And sometimes, yeah, God has to use drastic measures. God wants for us experience in him, relation with him. And so we come across love and I would simply define it as God is want, or love is wanting for others what God wants for them. And it says, God so loved the world that he gave what? Wealth, happiness, joy, cars, shoes, anything, computers, Apple. Some of you think you know, Apple computers are good, you know, right? He gave us what? Jesus. He gives us Jesus. And so the most loving thing you can possibly do is want for others what God wants for them, and that's Christ. Love is wanting for others what you want for them. And does that lead to some tussles? Yeah, it does. Does that lead to you having to, in a Christ way, say, I don't condemn you, but turn from your sin and sin no more? Is that loving? Yeah, it's loving. That's judgmental. What did Jesus say about judging? The Bible says, do not judge. First of all, you took that whole thing out of context. What does Jesus himself say? Judge righteously. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Judge righteously. How do you judge righteously? Without condemning? You say, I see that as sin. I see that that sets you apart from God, and I want you to be reconciled to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. The most loving thing you can do 
is proclaim Jesus through repentance, is to proclaim Jesus through forgiveness, and proclaim to a broken and fallen world as an image bearer of Christ, Jesus to the world. That is love. God pursued us in the garden. He pursued us on the cross. I don't know if you've read Revelation, my favorite book in the Bible. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. We serve a God that pursues, that calls us to repentance, that calls us to forgiveness because he loves. And all of it hinges on the cross of Christ. Repent tonight. Forgive. Proclaim Jesus to a broken world. That is love. Amen? Let's pray. God, we say to you tonight that You are God. And we are creation. We know in Genesis that we're set apart from lower creation. There is you, there is us, and there is lower creation. We are not God, but we are not animals either. We say to you, you are God. We are man. You love us. And because you love us, you've revealed yourself to us. You've given us a lifeline in repentance. You've given us an opportunity to reflect you, though broken, to reflect your forgiveness to a world that desperately needs to no longer be seen through the lens of their sin. So tonight, we first and foremost, we repent of our sin. Holy Spirit, minister to every heart here. I can't do that. I can't mediate that. Minister to everyone here who are, we're all dealing with sin. Show us the sins we need to turn from, repent from. That we need to turn and put to death. Show us areas in our life, our friends and our family and our coworkers and, and our bosses that we need to forgive. We need to forgive because ultimately forgiveness and repentance are about you, not us. Thank you for showing us your love and your grace and your mercy. Jesus, we put a stake in the ground. We say we no longer have any excuse to not proclaim you to the world because the world so desperately wants and seeks and proclaims to need love. And myself included, we've simply gone about that wrong. We love the world so much. We're not in the world. We're we're not of the world. We're in the world, however. And we want to minister. Everyone here has a ministry. And that proclamation of love comes from desiring Christ in the lives of everyone. We thank you for repentance. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness. We thank you that you love us and you pursue us to no end because we're your children. You're a good dad. In Jesus' name, amen.